Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. What if I told you that one of the most famous people of the 19th century was an Algerian man who fought a struggle of armed jihad against invading French forces in the country, was a deeply devoted Sufi mystic, and eventually received several medals and awards in Europe for his bravery and compassion, even having a city in the United States named after him? This is, in fact, a real story about one of the most fascinating figures in the modern history of the Middle East, Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi, widely known as Emir Abdul Qadir. His life story is one filled with intrigue, twists and turns, and deep spirituality. But perhaps above all, it is instructive to uh, dispel misconceptions and, and misunderstandings about uh, the Middle East, uh, North Africa, and Islam and Sufism. So today, let's spend some time and explore one of the most inspiring figures of modern history. Abdul Qadir ibn Muhyiddin al-Jazairi is considered a national hero in his native Algeria, often to the point of being seen as the very father of the modern Algerian nation. Abdul Qadir was born in 1808 in Gretna in northwestern Algeria into a family of religious scholars and quote-unquote mystics with Arab tribal background, allegedly descendants of the Prophet Muhammad himself. 
His father, Muhyiddin, was a greatly respected marabout, a word that is uh, commonly used in North and West Africa to denote a uh, sort of a religious authority, and often with connections to Sufism in particular, a kind of Sufi authority. And indeed, Muhyiddin was an accomplished Sufi sheikh and a regional leader for the Qadari Sufi order, one of the most widespread and major mystical brotherhoods in the history of the Islamic world. So, Abdul Qadir grew up in an environment of religious learning and Sufi piety, essentially living in his father's Zawiya, or Sufi lodge. As such, he was given a proper education at a young age, being the son of such an important figure, obviously. He was taught to memorize and recite the Qur'an, he was taught the hadiths, or traditions about the Prophet Muhammad, uh, Islamic law, and of course the spiritual path of Sufism. He was also sent to study more quote-unquote worldly knowledge, such as uh, philosophy, geometry, geography, mathematics, and other such topics, as well as training his skills in horseback riding, which was an important skill to the Bedouin living in the Maghreb at the time. Stories also tell of how he would periodically go out into the desert by himself for long periods, learning to survive in the harsh environment. Um, even though he was destined for a life of scholarship, these skills would all prove very useful later in his life when he found himself, sort of very unexpectedly, to be a military leader. He also accompanied his father and other followers on the long pilgrimage to Mecca, the so-called Hajj, which all able Muslims are enjoined to perform, and also on the way back, stopped in various places such as Damascus and Baghdad, and visiting the tombs of important saints, or awliya, uh, which is Sufi saints in history, such as Ibn Arabi and Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, who is the founder of the Qadri order that they belong to. He eventually found himself back in Algeria again though, and in 1830 things were to take a very dramatic turn. The French colonial power was expanding into Africa at this time, and in July of 1830, they invaded Algeria. The region had been ruled by the Ottoman Turks before this, and the local population had begun to increasingly despise their leaders as corrupt in various different ways. And as such, the immediate reaction to the French invasion wasn't that dramatic. Even though the new invading powers were Christian, there was hope that maybe they would at least be better at ruling the country than the earlier Ottoman powers were. It turned out pretty quickly, however, that this was not the case. The country was basically thrown into complete anarchy, and the French appeared basically incapable of keeping order in the country with all the various tribes and, and, and what was going on there. The local population thus found itself in a situation where things needed to change. The invading force had to be dispelled to keep the peace and order in the region. And because Muhyiddin, Abdul Qadr's father, was so beloved as a religious leader, many turned to him to lead this resistance. But he thought himself to be a man of peace, to not want to get too involved in worldly things, and he was also too old to lead a war, so instead he handed over this responsibility to his son, Abdul Qadr, who was only 24 years old at this point in 1832. Thus, Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi became the Amir al-Mu'minin, the commander of the faithful, the new leader of the resistance that was to wage armed struggle, jihad, against the invading French powers to liberate the country. This was quite unexpected in a way. As we said, he came from a scholarly family, not one associated with warriors or warfare. But Abdul Qadir's great intelligence, charisma, and speaking abilities garnered him great support even from the very beginning. In a statement, he said, quote, 
We have therefore assumed this heavy responsibility, hoping it may be the means for uniting the Muslim community and of preventing dissension among them and affording general security to all the inhabitants of the land and putting an end to lawlessness and of driving back the enemy who has invaded our country in order to subjugate us. Within a pretty short span of time, Abdul Qadir had basically united most of the many disparate tribes in Algeria in a unified struggle against the French. And he proved to be a pretty you know, capable military leader, garnering many significant victories against the invading powers. And keep in mind, the French were, like, this was one of the most powerful armies in the entire world at this time. He would use guerrilla tactics to fight the enemy, and he would essentially consistently live in a tent, partly as a sign of you know, humility and probably related to his Sufi practice and asceticism. So even though he essentially became the, the leader of a nation, a sort of Arab nation that, that was unified in, in struggle against the French, he always lived in this tent for the most part, um, and he kept uh, living a very sort of ascetic, um, very sort of humble lifestyle. And this, of course, uh, goes back very much to his um, association with the Sufi path. At least this is my reading of it. There's a lot of really fascinating information about the actual military career of Abdul Qadir and these uh, basically almost two decades of war that he was engaged in. Uh, but that's not going to be the main focus of this video. Uh, if you want to know more about that, you can advise uh, some, there's some great literature out there. Uh, there is, for example, Kaiser's very competent and, and popular book called The Commander of the Faithful, uh, which I can recommend. There are also other, uh, other books out there that you can... Um, you can advise, uh, but it is a very fascinating story of twists and turns. It's really, uh, it's it's a very dramatic story, uh, and you know it deserves to be told. And I, we will be talking about the the military uh, career and and these years, but that will not be the main focus of this video. Over the course of the war, there were several peace treaties signed, one in 1834 and another in 1837. And the French very quickly realized that while Abdul Qadir was a fierce warrior and military leader at wartime, he was also highly dignified, uh, respectful and kind, and especially in times of peace. French officers who visited him in his camps describe him and his followers as uh, welcoming and that he is a man who always keeps his word. And this is something that he also very much emphasizes in his own letters to the French, that he is a man that keeps his word. So when he promises something, when there is a sort of uh, peace treaty, for instance, he's never the one to break it. And looking at the history and what, what actually happened during the war, there is, you know, let's just say there is um, there's reason to believe him. What he was after at the end of the day was, of course, peace. He was, as we have seen, a deeply religious man, devoted to the Islamic religion and its teachings. And this deep religiousness and spirituality shines through in descriptions from the time, as he didn't have the look of a warrior at all, rather being described as almost looking like some kind of saint with his uh, simple clothing and aura. General Bougot, one of the emir's foremost enemies in Algeria, once said, quote, he is pale and somewhat resembles the way that Jesus Christ is often portrayed. And like we said, while he was a fierce warrior on the battlefield and in war, he quickly also gained a reputation for his righteousness, saintly nature, and even humanitarianism. Indeed, Abdul Qadir was adamant to reform certain practices in war that he saw his fellow Algerians taking part in, but which, according to him, went against the rules and laws of Islam particularly when it came to the treatment of prisoners. 
For example, it was a common practice to behead the enemies you had killed in battle and bring them back to your commander, basically, for a prize. So the more heads you had gathered, the more of the prize you would receive. This was utterly barbaric and sacrilegious to Abdul Qadir, who forbade this practice completely. Individuals were indeed themselves punished, and pretty harshly, if it came to light that they had beheaded a dead or surrendered enemy. Abdul Qadir saw it as very important, according to his religious convictions, that prisoners of war were treated humanely and with dignity. When the soldiers brought back prisoners to the camp, the prisoners would always be questioned to make sure they were treated well on the way there. And once in captivity, the prisoners were always looked after by Abdul Qadir's mother, Lala Zohra, being fed and clothed and treated with kindness. We know this to be true and not just, you know, fanciful legend, because there are accounts told by the prisoners themselves after the fact. Indeed, it was former prisoners of Abdul Qadir that would later become some of his greatest supporters in France and who campaigned to have him released when he was himself imprisoned. Uh, they would often sometimes even visit him in captivity and send him letters thanking him for how humanely they had been treated while imprisoned in his camp. There are also stories of the emir releasing French prisoners simply because he didn't have enough food to feed them properly. In another famous event, he also started a correspondence with a local Christian bishop in Algeria, who had written to the emir asking if he could uh, release a particular prisoner whose wife and child were basically helpless without him. Abdul Qadir agreed to this and even pointed out in an almost kind of comical way that the bishop should really have asked for all the prisoners to be released. Uh, this started a long friendship between the bishop and Abdul Qadir that would last for the rest of their lives, basically. And during the war, they together made a what, what could basically be called a humanitarian effort to exchange prisoners between the two sides of the war. So relieving as many people as possible of unnecessary captivity. Later in life, they would also meet in person and become deep friends. Abdul Qadir saw in the bishop a fellow servant of God, devoted to peace and love of humanity, and they shared many conversations about religion, God, the Bible, and you know Jesus and all these things. This character of the emir became known to people in the region and even around the world. In England, he was already being celebrated as a hero who was defending his country against the French. And of course, the English weren't very fond of the French at this time, which helped this perspective. And although he was their enemy who made life very difficult for them sometimes, many of the French soldiers and generals couldn't help but at least respect him. He really was a complex and three-dimensional character in many ways. There's no denying that he could be very harsh and even cruel at times, especially to those, you know, people of local tribes that had betrayed him, for instance. Um, you know, the political and social situation in the country was a very difficult one, and to be able to unite all these tribes and stand against the enemy required him to occasionally rule with an iron fist. He knew the culture and did what he had to to keep the nation under control. There are stories of Abdul Qadir having um, you know, tribal prisoners who had betrayed him executed. He would uh, perform these executions himself sometimes. So, you know, we should keep in mind that his life and his story is nuanced, right? He, he had these very, these sides of being very kind and merciful, but he also had a very harsh side to him when the situation called for it. At the same time, he was driven by his unfailing sense of justice and mercy. He was firmly rooted in his Islamic religious faith and practice with a high intelligence and thirst for knowledge, and ultimately with one goal in mind, which was peace. In a letter regarding a disputed peace agreement, he writes himself that, quote, 
Great king of the French, God has appointed each of us to govern some of his creatures. You are in a position far superior to mine by the number, power, and riches of your subjects, but on both of us he has imposed an obligation to make our people happy. Let us look together at our positions, and you will agree that on you alone depends the happiness of both of our nations. Sign, you say, and if you refuse, there will be war. Well, I will not sign. Yet I want peace, and only peace. Abdul Qadir was fighting a jihad. Not just a jihad of defending his country against invasion, but also the internal jihad against his self and ego. A jihad to uphold principles of humanity, selflessness, and avoidance of greed, anger, and unnecessary conflict. The status of war in Islam is, of course, a controversial topic. The Amir considered himself to be engaged in jihad, but what does this actually mean? Many people often mistakenly translate this as holy war, but what it actually means is struggle, and struggle in a very general sense. This can mean many different things, but usually at least with religious connotations. From moral struggle to do the right thing, struggle to be a good friend, uh, struggle for the environment, and of course in the Sufi context there is a huge focus on the so-called jihad and nafs, the struggle against the ego or against the self, something that Abdul Qadir was definitely involved with throughout his whole life. But jihad can of course also mean armed struggle in the form of, of war and violence, and when we read the old manuals of Islamic law, and when these manuals discuss the term jihad, it is usually this kind of armed jihad that is referred to. And this was also what the emir was engaged in against the French. But even in such armed jihad, there are also several rules and nuances that need to be kept in mind. Islamic law has always established and emphasized certain rules in war. That war needs to have a just cause, and that the actions during war must be just. Right. So this is we recognize this from the um, European uh, war tradition too. Uh, and according to many, this actually has its sort of um, a precursor in Islamic law. It's, there's a huge many many discussions in these different uh, law schools and manuals about. What's what counts as just cause for war, and what you know, what 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 are just behaviors within a war situation? For example, common rules in war across the board, so that basically everyone agrees on, is for instance the prohibition of killing non-combatants. So this includes you know women, children, the elderly, uh, monks, religious functionaries, etc., as well as a prohibition against killing livestock and animals, uh, burning down crops and just treatment of prisoners of war, all of which goes back to the actions of the Prophet Muhammad himself and his immediate successors, the early caliphs. When we look at the Qur'an, it at the very least seems to allow Muslims to use violence to protect themselves, to protect their land and faith when it is being attacked. But it also again and again enjoins the believer to pursue peace. Quote, If the enemy is inclined towards peace, make peace with them, and put your trust in God. Indeed, he alone is the all-hearing, the all-knowing. These were principles that Abdul Qadir definitely held as very important, and which he tried to follow as well as he could. It was his duty as a Muslim to protect his country against invaders, but also to incline to peace, kindness, and hospitality. Both of these, or all of these, fall under the general category of jihad. The armed jihad of self-defense 
and the moral jihad to uphold the principles of religion through being a good person and suppress the harmful inclinations of the ego. This, I think, is important to remember when we talk about Abdul Qadir and people like him. His life and actions are deeply informed by his understanding of the Islamic religion, just like the non-violent struggle of Ahmadu Bamba in Senegal was, for instance. An understanding that wasn't black or white, but also encompassing those aspects of kindness, compassion, and peace. As the years went on, the war continued to rage, bringing times of victory and times of defeat for both sides. By the 1840s, the French decided to turn up the dial in order to defeat Abdul Qadir once and for all, employing a kind of scorched earth tactic that proved very successful. The forces of the Emir were dwindling, more and more tribes were joining the French cause, and Abdul Qadir was forced to basically constantly uh, move around with his followers in his large movable city of tents called the Smala. Eventually, in 1847, he realized that it was useless to continue fighting. To do so would only bring more death, bloodshed, and sorrow upon his people, with very little chance of a positive outcome in the end. He decided to surrender, and to promise never to return to his native country, but only under the conditions that he was allowed to go into exile in either Acre, in what is today you know, the Levant, or Alexandria in Egypt. The French general in charge at the time, La Mauritière, accepted the terms. He met with Abdul Qadir and they together traveled to the coast of Algeria. On the way, curious people would come out to get a glimpse of the Emir, who had become almost like a legend or myth at this time. Abdul Qadir's family, as well as a large group of supporters and friends, decided to join him on his journey to the new home. But unfortunately, things didn't really go as expected. The French government at the time were not happy with the conditions that La Mauritière had accepted. They felt it was too dangerous for Abdul Qadir to be anywhere in the Middle East. So instead, he and his family were brought to France and were essentially imprisoned there. This was a great act of betrayal to the Arabs. The French had agreed to Abdul Qadir's terms when he surrendered, and now they didn't keep their word. They had basically betrayed them. They had lied to them, and now they were imprisoned. Uh, Abdul Qadir, throughout this prison stay, always tried to stay positive and, and to trust that the French would eventually um, follow through on their word. They would, um, you know, release him as they had promised and let him go to the Middle East. Uh, but unfortunately, while this did eventually happen, it took quite a long time. Indeed, he and his family and companions remained in prison from 1847 to 1852. Abdul Qadir and his community were moved several times, and for the most part, their living circumstances weren't exactly terrible. By the end, they were allowed to go on day trips outside the chateau that they lived in, but this was a small consolation compared to the actual freedom that they really wanted. The French would continuously offer Abdul Qadir to stay in the country and live a comfortable life with his family, almost as a nobility, but, but he always refused, choosing to remain in captivity until they upheld their part of the agreement. These years of imprisonment in France are really fascinating. While he was seen by many, especially those in the government, as an enemy that had fought them in North Africa, Abdul Qadir became somewhat of a local celebrity and almost like a legend in France. Basically everyone that was stationed as guards in the places where they were confined or interacted with him in any way only had good things to say about him and his character. One of these was named Doma, 
who was Abdul Qadir's keeper for a period of his imprisonment. The two would have long, deep discussions and actually became very close friends. Everyone describes him as very polite and kind, with a very high intelligence and a calm, almost saintly nature. Domas said, quote, He never complains for himself, though he is determined to hold France to its word. He forgives his enemies, even those who can still make him suffer, and he will not allow anyone to speak ill of them in his presence. Whether they are Muslims or Christians who are the subject of his complaints, he has forgiven them. Leon Roche, who is a figure we will meet again later, also said this about him, quote, His physiognomy is fluid, and despite his famous self-control, his face reflects the emotions that are stirring within. When he prays, he is an ascetic. When he commands, he is a sovereign. When he talks of war, he is a soldier. When he talks with his friends about matters other than statecraft or religion, he is good-humored and open, with an inclination towards self-deprecation. When he talks of his father, it is never without tears in his beautiful eyes. He made several friends while he stayed in France and received a steady flow of visitors from around the country, people who had heard about him and wanted to meet this curious man. Former French soldiers and generals that had been his prisoners in Algeria or fought him um, often came to thank him for his humane treatment of them. One of them even begged to be allowed to follow the emir to Turkey to be his personal servant as a way of thanking him. And the longer time went on and the more friends he made, the larger became the choirs of supporters who campaigned to have him released and to be allowed to return to the Middle East. To much of the French population, he had become something of a legendary hero, who was mistreated by their country. Finally, after many years of imprisonment, their wishes came true. After a revolution, the new emperor, Napoleon III, came to power in 1848, and on the 16th of October, 1852, he visited the emir at the Chateau d'Amboise, where he spent the last years, and told him that he was to be given his freedom. France was to uphold its side of the agreement made in 1847. Abdul Qadr and his family were ecstatic and relieved. Even the French guards and officers that had looked after the emir were emotional at this moment. Before leaving France, he visited Paris, the capital city. He went to the opera, visited the Notre Dame. He also received famous visitors in his hotel, including Victor Hugo, who is the, you know, the, obviously the author of the famous novels like The um, Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables. And he even received an official salute by the French army. This is quite a development from being their foremost enemy in Algeria to suddenly now receive an actual salute from the army itself. Abdul Qadir left France and settled first in Bursa in Turkey. But in 1855, he moved to Damascus in Syria, which would be his home for the rest of his life. Aside from being a beautiful and historic city where he could uh, live among his fellow Muslims and Arabs who spoke his language, there was another fact about the city that particularly attracted him. Indeed, this was the resting place and final home of Abdul Qadir's personal hero and inspiration, one of the greatest Sufi masters and saints in the history of the Islamic world, Muhyiddin ibn al-Arabi, also known as the Sheikh al-Akbar, or the greatest master. While controversial in some circles, ibn Arabi has been one of the most influential mystical thinkers in the history of the Islamic world, and Abdul Qadir was particularly devoted to his teachings and legacy. And in many ways, this is what can be said to primarily characterize his life in Damascus during the last 30 years of his life. 
a devotion and deepening of his Sufism, the mystical path to intimacy with God, and of course his scholarly activities too. As we said in the beginning, Abdul Qadir came from a Sufi family, as did most people at that time. As many of you will know, of course, I've dedicated several episodes on this channel to Sufism. Um, so if you're interested in knowing more what Sufism in particular is, you can check out some of those earlier episodes, especially my episode uh, dedicated to Sufism as an intro introduction to Sufism. And I will, of course, leave links in a sort of uh, in the box up here and, and in the description, probably in the pinned comment maybe too. Uh, in very short terms, Sufism is often described as Islamic mysticism. Uh, it is a part of the wider religion of Islam that is focused on a sort of um, often a sort of renunciate attitude to, to life and a deepening of, of spiritual uh, sort of Islamic spirituality, right? So to get closer to God and travel on the path to intimacy, sometimes even union with God. Right. It's not something aside from Islam or, or, or additional to Islam. It has been a part of the wider uh, Islamic religion throughout history. As we said in the beginning, his father had been the head of the Qadariya Sufi Tariqa or Sufi order in the region, and Abdul Qadir inherited that tradition. He was always a Sufi, so to say, and we can see this in his practices and behaviors even during the war, with his strong insistence on asceticism, on dhikr, this is a kind of uh, recitation of the, the names of God and the proclamation of faith, a kind of meditation, you could say, as well as um, general practices of controlling his vices and living ascetically. He was simultaneously a warrior and a mystic, deeply immersed in spiritual practices and the Sufi path. Indeed, we find a fascinating account from one of his companions during the war, a curious French man called Leon Roche, who pretended to convert to Islam to get close to Abdul Qadir, basically, and became known by the Arabs as Omar. He struck a quite deep friendship with the Amir while he was there, and in his retellings of his time in Algeria, which are so fascinating, he describes Abdul Qadir's practice during the war. Quote, the religious practices of Abdul Qadir are not limited to this, that is, the Islamic daily prayers. He gives himself to meditation between each prayer, constantly touching his prayer beads. Every day in his tents or at the mosque, when by chance he finds himself in a town, he gives a talk on the unity of God. He is considered one of the most erudite theologians of the time. He fasts at least one time a week, and what a fast! From two hours before dawn until sunset, he does not eat drink, or even inhale any perfume. I don't know if I've mentioned that he rejects the use of smoking tobacco and barely tolerates snuff. He rarely allows himself the pleasures of coffee. The moment he sees that it is becoming a habit, he deprives himself of coffee for several days. Not only did he clearly follow a regimen of spiritual Sufi practice, as we can see here, but he seems to have been quite advanced on the path, and to be prone to deep mystical experiences and ecstasies. In another really fascinating account by Roj, he describes that during a battle, he came to the emir's tent at night, he was feverish and feeling terrible, like he was, basically, he thought he was going to die. Abdul Qadr then gave him a certain drink and then placed his head in his lap, stroking his hair and comforting him until he fell asleep. And when Roj woke up in the middle of the night, he was met with a striking image. He says, quote, I awoke well into the night. I opened my eyes and felt revived. The smoky wick of an Arab lamp barely lit the vast tent of the emir. 
He was standing three steps away from me. He thought I was asleep. His two arms were raised to the height of his head, fully displaying his milky white burnous and hike, which fell in superb folds. His beautiful blue eyes, lined with black lashes, were raised. His lips, slightly open, seemed to be still reciting a prayer, but nevertheless were motionless. He had come to an ecstatic state. His aspirations toward heaven were such that he seemed no longer to touch the earth. I had on occasion been granted the honor of sleeping in Abdul Qadr's tent, and I had seen him in prayer and been struck by his mystical transports. But on this night he represented for me the most striking image of faith. Thus the great saints of Christianity must have prayed. A haunting image of a powerful mystical experience, made all the more striking in my opinion because it is a description coming from an outside source, right? Roche was a Frenchman, he was not even Muslim, he pretended to be Muslim, and yet he describes this very powerful image of, of, of the emir in this ecstatic, mystical state. I think that's very powerful. So clearly we can see here that Abdul Qadr was always a devoted, not only a devoted Muslim, but even more so a devoted Sufi, who, would, who was advanced on the path and would have these mystical experiences. That was always true, even during the war, this was very much true. But in Damascus, from, you know, 55 to his death, about 30 years later, um, he would be even more focused and devoted on this mystical practice in particular. As we saw, he belonged to the Qadri Sufi order, and was especially devoted to the intellectual school and lineage of Ibn Arabi, which is often called the Akbariya, after his honorific title, Sheikh al-Akbar. Ibn Arabi was originally from Andalusia in southern Spain, and became an accomplished and famous mystic in the late 12th and early uh, 13th century. He eventually moved to the east, visiting places like Mecca, Konya, Cairo, and Baghdad, before settling down in Damascus in the 1230s. The Akbari school is particularly associated with an idea or doctrine known as Wahdat al-Wujud, meaning the oneness of being. This idea and the wider teaching of Ibn Arabi are very complicated, and I've dealt with them extensively in previous episodes, but in short, Ibn Arabi and the Akbari school proposes that God is identical to being. So being as in existence, God is being, or God is existence. And since, according to Islamic principles of Tawheed, or monotheism, God is one, that means also, of course, that being is one. It is basically, in other words, an affirmation of the Islamic proclamation of faith. La ilaha illallah. There is no God but God. But this also means that since God is being, there is no being or existence other than God. In other words, all there is, ultimately, is God. And everything, quote-unquote, other than God is non-existent. The cosmos, or world, that we experience is like a mirage. It's like a shadow or a mirror image. God has infinite attributes, and these infinite attributes of God have infinite ways that they can become manifested in particular form. And the world of appearance is that fleeting manifestation or reflection of the attributes of God. As I like to say, it is the unfolding of possibilities inherent in infinite actuality. These reflections, the world, is ultimately non-existent, and everything we truly experience is the being of God itself. So that truly, quote, whichever way you turn, there is the face of God. You can imagine kind of like a projector. The light being God or being, the filter that the light goes through is the 
possibilities of manifestation determined by the attributes, and the actual projection on the wall being our world of appearance, being shaped by the non-existent images or possibilities, but ultimately only being the light itself taking different forms without itself ever becoming changed in itself. Again, this is complicated stuff, but that is the basic ideas of Ibn Arabi and the Akbari school that Abdul Qadir was so devoted to. Some have called it a type of monism or even non-dualism, but there's also a lot more going on here so that it's hard to put into a single category like that. And it was in Damascus that Ibn Arabi spent the last decade of his life before his death in 1240. And when Abdul Qadir moved to the city in 1855, he actually moved into the great master's old house. And his first request upon entering the city was to visit Ibn Arabi's shrine. And in Damascus, Abdul Qadir would establish himself as basically a kind of Sufi sheikh or master himself, as well as a teacher of religious sciences and a family man. He would teach every day in the famous Umayyad mosque and became quite popular as a teacher in the city. And in particular, he taught and commented on the teachings of Ibn Arabi and the Akbari school. Indeed, the Sufi lineage, or Silsila, chain that he belonged to, and which he was initiated into by his father, seems to have stretched back directly to Ibn Arabi himself, thus making him a direct representative of the Akbari lineage. This is quite unique and uncommon, as Ibn Arabi never actually initiated a Sufi order himself, and very few Silsilas or chains actually go through him, even though he has been such an influential thinker. In his lectures, Abdul Qadir would comment on verses of the Qur'an, of the Hadith, or writings by Ibn Arabi himself, and he eventually wrote a long, massive work of his own called the Kitab al-Muwaqif, the Book of Stops. This title clearly being a reference to another classic Sufi work by a guy called An-Nifari. And when we read his work, it becomes very apparent how closely he follows and represents the Akbari school of thought. And, for example, the so-called doctrine of Wahdat al-Wujud. He writes in the Kitab al-Muwaqif that, quote, I am two things, according to two different relations. With respect to you, I am the eternal, forever and ever. I am the necessary being who epiphanizes himself. With respect to me, I am pure non-being, which has never breathed the perfume of existence. An adventitious being who remains non-existent in his adventitiousness. In a commentary on the Quranic verse of the so-called soul at peace, he says, quote, these are those souls who know their true relation to servitude and lordship. That is to say, those who know that in naming the servant, one is designating nothing other than a particular manifestation of the Lord, as it is conditioned by the characteristics of the servant. The essential reality is Lord, the exterior is servant. The servant is a Lord manifested in the form of a servant, and in the appearance of the worshipper, it is himself who adores himself. As for Ibn Arabi and other Sufis, the goal of the spiritual life is to travel on the path to God, to where yourself or ego, the so-called nafs, eventually becomes annihilated, what is known as fana, this literally means annihilation or extinction, to where nothing is perceived but the true reality of God. Or really, actually, it's a process of realizing that everything that ever existed was God and your own being was always a kind of illusion, a non-existence or appearance in the mirror of being. As the Prophet Muhammad is thought to have said, quote, Know yourself and you shall know your Lord. Abdul Qadir writes, quote, 
His affairs return to God and they are but one. He has returned to God and he sees him through him. In the contemplation of this dead resurrected one, all creatures are annihilated, and for him only one thing exists, one reality only. And everything which is not the absolute being which belongs to God is accident. Or, in the almost shocking language of a short poem that he wrote, which recalls the famous saying of the Sufi Halaj, quote, Ana haqqu, ana khalqun, ana rabbu, ana abdu, ana arshun, ana farshun, wa jahimun, ana khaladu, ana ma'un, ana narun, wa hawa'un, ana saladu, ana kemmu, ana kaifun, ana wajdu, ana faqadu, ana dhatun, ana wasfun, ana qurbun, ana ba'du, kullu kouni, dhaka kouni, ana wahdi, I am truth, I am creature, I am Lord, I am servant, I am the throne and the mat one treads on, I am hell and I am the blissful eternity, I am water, I am fire, I am air and the earth, I am the how much and the how, I am the presence and the absence, I am the essence and the attributes, I am the near and the far. All being is my being. I am the only. I am the unique. Shocking as some of these statements may seem on the surface, they are perfectly within the Akbarian teachings and much of Sufism generally, but are often easy to misunderstand. Just like Ibn Arabi, Ibn Qadr is careful to point out that this isn't pantheism, and that even though it may seem like it, he never claims that God and creation are one and the same thing. Quite the contrary, actually. They couldn't be further from each other from one standpoint. God is being and the world is non-being. So they are polar opposites of each other from one perspective. So nuance and proper understanding of the Akbarian teachings need to be kept in mind when we read works like the Kitab al-Muraqif. But indeed, Abdul Qadir is a very strong defender of Ibn Arabi, perhaps one of the most devoted Akbarians in history, even though, of course, he um, innovates and is unique himself too, of course. But even certain things of Ibn Arabi is that even those of his own school are often uncomfortable with or sort of explain away, Abdul Qadir seems to support outright. This includes the idea that the Pharaoh in the story of Moses became Muslim at the end of his life and was saved, or the idea that suffering in hell is temporary and not eternal. Another idea in Ibn Arabi that is often misunderstood is his ideas on the plurality of beliefs, sometimes called the divinity of beliefs. Some seem to see traces of this in probably Ibn Arabi's most famous uh, uh, writing, which is a section from one of his poems, which goes, لَقَدْ صَارَ قَلْبِي قَابِلًا كُلَّ سُورَةٍ فَمَرَعَ لِغِزْلَانٍ وَدَيْرٌ لِرُحْبَانِ my heart has become capable of all forms. It is a pasture for gazelles and a cloister for monks. It is a temple for idols and the Kaaba of pilgrims. It is the scrolls of the Torah and the pages of the Qur'an. I follow the religion of love. Wherever its caravans may turn, that is my religion and my faith. 
Abdul Qadr certainly could be called, to a certain degree, tolerant of different religious denominations and beliefs. His life story tells us as much, and he himself wrote in a letter that, quote, I have become so tolerant that I respect all men whatever their religion and beliefs. I try not to harm any man, but rather do him good. God created men to be his servants, not the servants of other men. But this also needs to be understood through the lens of his Islamic faith. Many have seen this openness as some kind of liberalism or cooling commitment to the exclusivity of Islam, especially when he wrote things like, quote, Our God and the God of all the communities different from ours are in reality one God. He reveals himself to Muslims as beyond all form, to Christians in the person of Jesus Christ and monks. He reveals himself even to pagans who worship objects. For no worshipper of something finite worships the thing for itself. What he worships through this object is the epiphany of God. But this reading or interpretation of what he is saying is false, or at least very much simplified. Instead, the source of these ideas come from within Islam itself, not some liberal attitude to the religion. In particular, we find in the previous quote a direct expression, once again, of the ideas of Ibn Arabi. To Ibn Arabi and Abdul Qadir, everything in the world is the manifestation of the attributes of God, as we said. Furthermore, everyone experiences and sees God in a different way. God self-discloses himself, or epiphanizes himself, in different ways to different people. And because everything, including Jesus or a rock or a sacred tree, is also technically a manifestation or reflection of God, when people are worshipping these particular things, they are worshipping God. Indeed, the Quran says, He has commanded that you worship none but him which the Akbari school interprets as literally meaning that you can't help but worship God, whatever it is that you are worshipping. Now, the problem with non-Muslims, and many Muslims too, indeed, according to this perspective, is that they limit God to that one particular thing, or fail to realize that while he is indeed imminent everywhere, he also remains utterly transcendent of all things at the same time. And so their worship is still invalid in a general sense. These ideas are not an affirmation or accepting of paganism or other forms of worship, but an expression of the very particular metaphysical teachings of Ibn Arabi and the Akbari school about the plurality of beliefs and worship. Ibn Arabi writes in the famous Fusus al-Hikam that, quote, Do not attach yourself to any particular creed exclusively, so that you disbelieve all the rest. Otherwise, you will lose much good. Nay, you will fail to recognize the real truth of the matter. Let your soul be capable of embracing all forms of belief. God, the omnipresent and omnipotent, is not limited by any one creed. This is obviously a very beautiful and profound section, but we should not simplify or misunderstand it. Uh, both Ibn Arabi and Abu Qadr believed in the exclusivity of Islam as the one true religion, and all other, all other forms of worship and belief was um, false, at least in relation to Islam, right? Islam is the one true religion. All other worship has been abrogated. Um, but so again, we shouldn't misunderstand this to say to think that there are some sort of you know, like religious liberals that are just accepting of all other forms of beliefs. Um, this is not what Ibn Arabi is saying here, and that does not appear to be what Abdul Qadr is saying either. I read in Abdul Qadr's statements a direct sort of expression or mirroring of the ideas of Ibn Arabi here, um, which he was, of course, so devoted to. 
Now, that doesn't mean that these particular ideas can't be used to, to encourage or to form a basis for a more tolerant or open attitude to other religions. And I'm sure it did so uh, to some degree for Abdul Qadir, for instance. Uh, but we shouldn't take these ideas in themselves as an expression of that kind of attitude. We should understand what they're actually saying. In any case, to understand the great Amir and his intellectual or spiritual life, we need to understand Ibn Arabi and the great affinity that Abdul Qadir had for him. He was a dedicated and devoted Sufi, a master himself, prone to mystical experiences of ecstasy and quite advanced on the Sufi path. Indeed, he continued to travel to Mecca and Medina, and here he also became, even though he was himself a Sufi master, uh, he became a disciple of another Sufi sheikh, Muhammad al-Fasi al-Shadili. As we saw, Abdul Qadir was part of the Qadri order of Sufism, and connected to the lineage of Ibn Arabi. But here, he also became initiated into the Shadili order, and seems to have reached the heights of spiritual attainment while with the sheikh in the Hijaz. But after fana, or annihilation of the self, comes the next step of the path, baqa, or subsistence and remaining, where one returns to the world of multiplicity with a new perspective, to live out your life here in the world, where you are after all supposed to be. And in the worldly sphere, Abdul Qadir's fame and renown would become even greater in 1860. Because in July of that year, a riot broke out in Damascus. Tensions had been growing for a while between the Christians in the region and the Ottoman rulers as well as other groups of Muslims and Druze. These tensions were primarily centered around certain uh, reforms that affected taxes and the status of dhimmis, or protected peoples, like Christians for instance. While the details of what led to this event are somewhat murky, in early July, large groups of hired mercenaries, Druze and Muslims, entered the Christian quarter of Damascus and started a bloody, horrible massacre. Diplomats were chased through the city, homes were burned down, and Christians were massacred on the streets. And in the midst of this chaos, Abdul Qadir took it upon himself to act as a protector of the Christians in the city. He rode out with his sons and associates into the heat of the riot, shouting that everyone should make their way to his house, where they would be sheltered. The large house of Abdul Qadir, which had previously belonged to his master Ibn Arabi, became a safe haven for Christians fleeing the massacre in the city, protected by the emir's soldiers that had stood by him since Algeria. It was his duty, he felt, as a Muslim, to protect the lives of innocent Christians. A few days into the riots, a large mob of people came to the gates of his house, demanding that he hand over the Christians sheltered inside. He said to the crowd, My brothers, your behavior violates the law of God. What makes you think you have a right to go around killing innocent people? The crowd seemed to find him a kind of hypocrite, since he himself had, of course, killed Christians in Algeria. He responded, You fools, the Christians I killed were invaders and occupiers who were ravaging our country. As long as one of my soldiers is still standing, you will not touch them. They are my guests. Murderers of women and children, you sons of sin, try to take one of these Christians and you will learn how well my soldiers fight. This uncompromising stance of Abdul Qadir eventually dissuaded the angry crowd, and eventually, of course, the riot also died down. While estimates vary, it is widely believed that Abdul Qadir and his companions saved thousands of lives on those days in 1860. 
For this, he became seen as even more of a hero around the world. He was given several medals and sent gifts and letters of praise from various world leaders, from the Pope to Queen Victoria and even Abraham Lincoln, who sent the Amir a gift of two Colt pistols. This is truly a remarkable story in so many different ways. The man who was the foremost enemy of, of France and had fought them for many years in bloody war uh, in Algeria a couple of years earlier was now being awarded medals and, and hailed as a hero to all across the world for his actions. Fellow Muslims also praised him for his noble actions, including the famous Imam Shamil, who wrote, quote, I was stupefied by the blindness of the functionaries who committed these excesses, forgetting the words of the Prophet. And he praised the Emir for following the Islamic principles represented by the Prophet Muhammad and his religion. And in his response to this famous Muslim figure, Abdul Qadir's own perspective becomes apparent. Quote, what I did was merely obedience to our sacred law and to the precepts of humanity. This is significant to keep in mind, especially with the image that many people have of Muslims and their religion today. The actions of Abdul Qadir during the riots of 1860, as well as his other actions and behavior across his life, was not something that went against his faith or simply existed alongside it. It was precisely because of his deep commitment to Islam and its law that he did what he did. A law that, according to him, commands Muslims to protect the innocent and to stand up for humanity. He did believe that the Christians should pay the jizya tax and that they were wrong to refuse it. But the same religious conviction that led him to that opinion also led to him fiercely opposing the killing of innocent civilians and of violence. He writes in another letter that, quote, That which we did for the Christians, we did to be faithful to Islamic law and out of respect for human rights. All creatures are part of God's family, and those most loved by God are those who do the most good for his family. The law of Muhammad places the greatest importance on compassion and mercy, and on all that which preserves social cohesion and protects us from division. And it should be pointed out that he wasn't alone in this. There were plenty of other Muslims and Islamic leaders and clergy in Damascus at the time who also you know, put themselves in danger to protect their Christian neighbors during this event. It's just the case that Abdul Qadir has become the most famous because his actions were so dramatic and also, of course, because he was already famous before this event took place. He continued to live the rest of his life in the city of Damascus, but traveled from time to time to places like Paris and England, uh, meeting important people and leaders in those countries. Uh, he became good friends with a few famous Englishmen in Syria, such as the perhaps infamous Orientalist Richard Burton, who, among other things, wrote the very problematic translation of the Arabian Nights, uh, as well as his wife and the fascinating Jane Digby. He also seems to have, surprisingly, become initiated into a Masonic order, so Freemasonry. Um, this is a sore point for many who see uh, Freemasonry as simply an occult movement, sometimes even thought to have connections with Zionism, uh, but this wasn't true here. They had invited him to join on the basis that they had similar principles, uh, a devotion to God and upholding the principles of humanity, and he seems to have joined and, and been part of this organization for uh, quite a while, uh, but left in 1877 uh, because uh, this uh, Masonic Lodge, they decided to uh, become open to atheists. So atheists could now join, and this was a step too far for the emir, so he left this group at that point. 
We see him engaging with important people throughout the world. Basically, he met Imam Shamil eventually. He was present at the opening of the Suez Canal. Um, and yeah, he, he was a famous person, right? He was a famous person worldwide while he still lived his life in Damascus as a Sufi master and a teacher and a family man. He would spend most of his days in his library or at the mosque teaching or um, with his family at home, with his children, for example, raising them as well as he could. After a long and very dramatic life, Abdul Qadir ibn Muhyiddin al-Jazairi passed away in 1883 after an illness of the kidneys. Per his own specific wishes, he was buried right next to his spiritual master and inspiration, Ibn Arabi, where he remained until 1965 when his body was moved and reburied in his homeland of Algeria. And there's a difference of opinion on this, of course. On the one hand, he did specifically ask to lie close to Ibn Arabi, but on the other hand, it's quite a nice thought that he was finally able to you know, return home again, uh, especially since he had become basically a national hero to the newly independent nation of Algeria. His story is truly one of the most remarkable of recent history, from a childhood of scholarly brilliance and mystical practice to becoming the face of Algerian resistance and jihad, the commander of the faithful against the French for 15 years, later being imprisoned in France while becoming essentially a local hero and legend for his stoic behavior, saintly nature and his treatment of prisoners during the war. After being released and returning to the Middle East, he would further become a great scholar and teacher in Damascus, a friend of several important historical figures, a Sufi sheikh and a static mystic who embodied and taught the, the Akbari school of Ibn Arabi, and became quite important for the uh, revitalization of that school in the region, even contributing to uh, critical editions of his works, such as the Futuhat al-Makiyah, um, as well as publishing significant works of his own, ranging from Sufi metaphysics to treatises on the Arabian horse. He also, as we saw, became an international hero after bravely saving Christians from a massacre in 1860, garnering the admiration of world leaders and general people alike. In the United States, there is a city in Iowa called Al-Qaeda, named after the sheikh, whose fame and renown had reached all the way across the Atlantic. Not to mention just the touching and inspiring way that his character, kindness, and sagely nature is described by basically everyone who met him. One can truly understand, then, why the New York Times wrote right before his death that, quote, If to be an ardent patriot, a soldier whose genius is unquestioned, whose honor is stainless, a statesman who could weld the wild tribes of Africa into a formidable enemy, a hero who could accept defeat and disaster without a murmur. If all these constitutes a great man, Abdul Qadir deserves to be ranked among the foremost of the great men of the century. And I would perhaps be so bold as to say not just the 19th century, but maybe of all time. His life really sort of deserves to be made into a movie or something, or some sort of series. I know there was talk about making a movie about his life like 10 years ago or so, and I think wasn't like Oliver Stone involved or something? I don't know what happened to that, but um, if anyone... Like he's looking for a good story to make into a movie, like here it is, right? <laughs> and if anyone decides to do so, call me.
It is a story and a person that can tell us a lot about not just the Middle East in the 19th century, but also to be a valuable addition to the discourse on Islam, where Abdul Qadir represents a complex and nuanced figure, one who is deeply and strictly devoted to an orthodox understanding of Islam and its law, but precisely through that devotion can represent ideals of righteousness, kindness, compassion and tolerance. For this reason alone, as well as many others, the story of Abdul Qadir deserves to be told and known by many people. And I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.